Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house, indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today on the show, we're discussing the new film from director Ari Aster, Bo is Afraid. Returning to the show is filmmaker Andrew Bocock. Stick around. I've been thinking about this movie for like 10 years. There's a part of me that can't believe we're making this film. It's epic. Jumbo. Every detail has a detail inside of it. If you pumped a 10-year-old full of Zoloft and had him get your groceries, that's like this movie. I wanted to make a film where it feels like you've been through a life or even through a person. I feel a great responsibility to deliver something amazing. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Are you expecting it to be safe? It's like a Jewish Lord of the Rings, but he's just going to his mom's house. I want to put you in the experience of being a loser. Welcome to Art House Garage. Ari Aster is a filmmaker primarily known for horror. He made a name for himself over the last few years with 2018's Hereditary and 2019's Midsummer. His new film, titled Bo is Afraid, is in a bit of a different vein. Bo is Afraid stars Joaquin Phoenix as Bo, a man with extreme anxiety about everything. The world Bo inhabits in the film is frightening to him at every turn, but while the film has its horrific moments, it's actually a comedy, though a pitch black one. My guest today is filmmaker Andrew Bocock, who has been on the show a few times before. He's a big fan of horror, so I knew he'd have some thoughts on Ari Aster. Andrew also tells us about some of his own recent film work. So let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Andrew Bocock about the film, Bo is Afraid. She's very pretty. Is that the type of girl you're attracted to? I am so sorry for what your daddy passed down to you. I wanted a child. I'm visiting my mother tomorrow. Do you ever wish that she was dead? What? Bo? Are you on your way? I'm on my way. I just... It's not safe, is it? I sincerely doubt that. You'll do the right thing, sweetheart. Andrew Bocock, welcome back to the podcast. How are you today? Hey, I am pretty well, um, yeah. all things considered. Life's been a bit of a whirlwind recently, but, you know, taking the good with the bad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been just busy time for me and less busy than you are. So I can't imagine. And thank you again for taking the time to talk about a movie with me today. Uh, when I saw Ari Aster had a new film come in, I was like, I think Andrew would be good for this. <laughs> yeah. I just said, no, you're like horror and everything. You know, this is not really a horror movie in the way that his others are. We'll get to that in a minute. But uh, before we do, I want to hear about your work. You're working on a film called Wildfire, which you've told me a little bit about in the past. But yeah, what's going on with uh, with your film? 
Yeah, um, well, I, I should say it's not my film sure, per sure, se. Sure. It's <laughs> I'm 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 the editor. Um, it's uh, Eric Parkinson is a uh, writer, director, producer. He recruited me actually for some other work last year uh, for a different film, and then I ended up getting kind of pulled in to help finish this film because it was early in its stages and uh, it's been kind of a, a long. I won't bore you with the details, but. Uh, you know, it started shooting right before COVID. They had some complications, having to shut down for funding, other issues. And so it's been kind of shot here and there over the past three and a half years. Um, okay. So they're <laughs> finally, I think we yeah. shot the, um, actually the, I got a chance last week. Um, <clears throat> I recently moved, I, you know, moved out of Arkansas. And now I'm living in El Paso with my wife uh, for the time being. And the uh, lead actress, Chevelle Shepard, actually lives in Farmington, New Mexico. And um, so that's much closer to where I am now. And uh, Eric, the director, actually recruited me to help uh, actually go and direct a pickup scene that we had to do, oh, wow. um, which is the final like piece that we're missing as far as um, kind of piecing the film together. Um, and it's kind of surreal. So for those of you, well, most of you probably are not aware because it's kind of early stages of the uh, being marketed and whatnot, but this is actually sadly going to be Anne Heche's uh, final film performance. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, uh, it's kind of a surreal experience editing all this footage with mm -hmm. somebody yeah. who's no longer with us. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a really, it's a family film and it, it's a sweet little story um, about a teenage girl who, you know, has a tragedy, tragedy happen in her life and she encounters has to move to a different state and encounters this horse that kind of like helps her reconcile with some of the trauma she's going through. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. And so it's, it's supposed to, I think we're on track now. Um, at least the last I heard <laughs> to have it mm -hmm. actually finally out in July. Um, but we'll see what happens with that. Um, a trailer that I cut should be premiering in can actually in a few weeks. Nice. Um, so, they're supposed to be uh, premiering that with a few other promos for a couple other films that Eric's doing. So, yeah, That's really um, cool. so it's yeah. it's a cool opportunity, a little bit bittersweet uh, because you know it's that whole thing of being Anna Hayes's final film, mm -hmm. um, and there's also a few um, like minor characters that are of note. Uh, one of them is uh, Kara Jade Myers, who she's a uh, probably not on the lips of many yet, but she was uh, a lot of early buzz for her because she's a uh, supporting performer in Killers of the Flower Moon. And um, uh, yes. I've heard that there's some Oscar buzz around her performance in that. Wow. Film. So, Very cool. Um, so yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah. it's, it's just a lot of, <laughs> it's been, uh, I'll, I'll tell you more about it another time, but the, the actual <laughs> experience of cutting this film together has been incredibly interesting because when, when mm. you're trying to shoot one scene after another uh, or piece it together mm -hmm. with different actors over the span of three and a half years, sometimes you lose actors, sometimes mm. teenagers grow up a little, yeah, people mm -hmm. gain and lose weight, like things like that you have yeah. to kind of try to work around. It's pretty... Uh, it's been pretty interesting, but wow. you know, we're finally, I think in that stage of, of uh, bringing it all together. So it's exciting. Well, that's great. Yeah. I know you've been working on it a while and 
yeah, having I, I knew that about Anne Heche being her last performance. So I've, yeah, I've been really interested to see, you know, footage. Whenever trailers online, I'll make sure to post it and uh, share that out because I'm excited to see it. But, well, cool. Um, thanks for sharing about that. And I guess without further ado, let's talk about Bo is Afraid. So yeah, as mentioned, this is Ari Aster's. I guess it's a third feature. Um, he has a handful of short films, actually none of which I've seen. You sent me some links, and I was oh, I wanted to watch uh, a couple, but just kind of ran out of time today. Sure. Uh, and actually, I intentionally did not. I know there's one that's called Bo, and yeah. I I almost watched that a few months ago. And I was like, you know what? It might you know if it's anything related to this film, maybe it would spoil this film. So I didn't watch it yet. Uh, I don't know if that's the case or not, but. Um, because also I know that he pulled it down from his personal Vimeo. And I was like, maybe he doesn't want people to see this before the <laughs> the big feature. But anyway, um, but yeah. So again, this is not really a horror film in the same way that Hereditary and Midsummer are. But I thought I'd ask you first: How do you feel about those uh, other two films of it, or any of the shorts you've seen? Um, I'm a pretty big fan of Ari Aster. I think across mm-hmm. the board, I really love both of his features. I would say Hereditary and Midsummer are, in some sense, near masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did make some really compelling shorts as well. And some of them I was familiar with uh, before seeing Bo is Afraid. Um, I, I've seen, I would say a handful, but over the last couple of days, I've been seeking out and watching, because he has actually a bigger chunk of short films than I had realized. Mm-hmm. I know I'd seen a few, but I was like, I want to kind of fill in the gaps because I had heard that Bo is afraid sort of either pays homage or has some like bits and pieces that were established mm-hmm. and built from his previous short films. And I, yeah, I got to say after watching his, all of his, I, I don't know if I've seen all of his shorts now, but all the ones I could get my hands on, which is like eight or eight or nine, maybe maybe 10 it's there's quite a few but he uh i it, it is interesting because bo's afraid i would say in it's a lot closer in his in in tone and style to who he was establishing himself as a filmmaker throughout all of his mm. short films and a big part of that is what I found pretty compelling is most of the, most of his shorts are very dark comedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that tone that Bo's afraid, if you had only been familiar with hereditary and midsummer, mm-hmm. I think this sort of feels like a curveball. but if you're mm-hmm. familiar with Ari Aster's other work, you're like, this is a very Ari Aster film. <laughs> so Interesting. Yeah. It's, wow. Yeah. It's a, there's a lot to kind of dig in into there. And um, I got to say, in regards to his short films, he did one film in particular that is that I, a lot of his films are are pretty blue and have some kind of extreme content that are mm-hmm. that can be a bit of a turnoff to a lot of viewers if you're not prepared for what it is. Um, yeah. he, there's a lot of frank sexual themes he he, he digs into, and the, there's one that he made that's a bit longer he made about 10 or 12 years ago called the strange thing about the Johnsons. And Mm -hmm. that film deals with incest in a very like extremely cringy, like, like Frank kind of way where if you're not prepared for where it's going, you're going to be, you're going to be thrown into something, man. (laughs) Um, So I've heard just like in Facebook groups and stuff, people like, 
this is the one of the wildest craziest things um so when you you earlier you texted it to me it was like morning you know if you watch it i haven't watched it yet i'm fascinated to now but uh, yeah yeah when i'm in the right mindset maybe right so as far as his features go what's interesting i mean you say that those afraid is not a horror film but to me it's funny because out of his three film three features so far i would say Bo is afraid is the most disturbing um, yeah. to me and and so like just to kind of recap hereditary floored me when i first saw it in theaters mm-hmm. i had no idea who ari aster was yeah it was his first feature uh i found it to be really compelling and masterfully crafted like on tier with rosemary's baby um, in, in that it, it kind of echoes some of the same themes. It's not exactly the same, but it, it has a similar vibe to what that film, what did, what 60, some, what has it been 60 years now? I don't know. Yeah, 50, close, 60 yeah. years. Time's crazy, man. So, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, hereditary was really horrifying and just really effective and just a, a, a masterfully crafted film on every, every mm-hmm. plane. Completely agree. And, Midsummer was, I loved it because it was very, it was, I guess you could say it, I mean, it's definitely comparable. It's, it's on in that track, but it does something different. And what back to seeing the trailers and myself being a big fan of the original Wicker Man film and the full mm-hmm. horror genre in general, I was super excited to see it, but I knew a lot of people early on were, were making that comparison to the to the Wicker Man, which if you've mm-hmm. seen the original Wicker Man film, it's funny because the the way I describe it is Midsummer follows the skeleton of the plot uh, pretty, like if you write a one sentence treatment for it, mm-hmm. there will be a very obvious comparison. And the term of the arc of the story, there's some decent comparison, but the themes are completely different. Mm-hmm. And so he takes sort of a, a familiar structure and does his own thing with it, which I thought was great. And he artistically, I think, got to explore some things in Midsummer that uh, were stretching further, I think, than what he was doing with Hereditary. Um, yeah. So, yeah. but what's interesting now with Bo's Afraid, it's like we had those two films prior, which definitely are fitting within the Hollywood pitch formats of it's kind of like this thing, but it's actually that thing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas Bo's Afraid, it's... Ari Aster getting his first shot at an uber ambitious dream project. Mm-hmm. And as I've already alluded to, his short films are basically, I wouldn't say if you like zoom out and you go back and watch his short films, oh, they're all part of the same universe or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems like he's drawing on all of his interests and elements from all of those short films that he did over the past like 15 years. Um, and the thing he did have, yes, and there is a short film he did called Bo, which he took the basic structure of that to mm-hmm. build this into. But but basically, it's still different. Uh, the, the, the short film of Bo, I would say, reflects only about the first 20 minutes or so of what mm-hmm. he did in, in this film. Mm-hmm. So it it definitely be, it be, becomes its own thing. And it goes yeah. definitely some different directions. Uh, when I say different directions, it goes 
so many directions <laughs> and we'll talk about yeah, that. that's true there's almost like chapters you can look through but yeah just to recap my own feelings about his other films again i've only seen the two features but yeah generally a big fan of both i actually like I think like you, I like Hereditary more, but some people just like worship Midsummer, which uh, again, I think it's great. Um, you know, it's so unique with like the daytime horror vibe, which is not like that common in the mainstream, I guess that, uh, really made a splash for that reason. Yeah. And of course we got Florence Pugh who's so good in that. And, and yeah, I think that even, even when it's not like I, just am in love with this movie i respect it so much and like the craft like you're saying like these movies just feel like weighty and well put together in a way that um even going into this like not knowing much about it you're just kind of immediately like okay i'm in good hands like they're he's gonna do something really creative and he's i remember hearing tony collette in an interview saying like he's so confident about every little detail of the world and you absolutely feel that in this one as well but hereditary i think is my favorite just um, there's so many good scenes in it. I love the the focus on grief. Tony Collette's performance is one of the all time horror performances. I mean, yeah. I haven't seen as many horror movies as you, but I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just some images in that that have stuck with me. That and also I had a really memorable theater experience with both of these, but that one too. It was like packed theater, and a lot of people were reacting, and, and it was just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, so I guess moving into this one, how well generally did did Bo's Afraid work for you? Well, that is an interesting question, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew, so let me put it this way. I knew I was in for some absurdist surrealism. I, mm-hmm. I got got that impression from the trailer. And, you know, thinking back to some of the short films I'd seen of his, him previously, I was like, I could see he, him hearkening back to, to what he was doing before a little bit. Uh, maybe with some more artistic freedoms. But I would say that what's brilliant about this is it managed to be a stroke of, I want to say dark comedy, but that term seems wildly insufficient. Yeah. yeah. It, it, because there's a plethora of adjectives you can whip together to describe the sub-sub-genre mm. that he's he's kind of working inside of. I, I would say the most succinct uh, type of genre I would ascribe this to is uh, an existential nightmare comedy. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I like that. But I, I, again, yeah, I'm still grasping at, at, yeah. at everything that's going on with it. So I think yeah. that, go ahead. I wouldn't say, yeah, I agree. It's like, it's, it is hard to pin down because it is, it is a dark comedy. I think we had so absurd and almost a farce at moments there's, I think, some social commentary in there, but it's, you know, buried under all this absurdism. Uh, and it's kind of a stoner film. I think it was released on 420 on purpose, like that was because <laughs> it is such a just zany all over the place kind of a, a movie. Um, and it also is really scary at a few moments, too. And so you feel that horror uh, thing. And, and as you're saying, just maybe the most upsetting <laughs> of any of his films. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, but yeah. I, I mean, I, th- I think that what, what makes it so upsetting too, is that even though it's so absurdist, it feels like you're dealing with themes that are more immediate, right? Mm-hmm. Themes that, themes that are relevant to everyday life, so to speak. Yeah. Like Versus it's thematically like, grounded. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're, it it's, so absurd. it's right. When you're dealing with say hereditary, oh, it, it goes into even though it does something powerful and fresh, 
you're going into a realm of oh there's this there's this uh, occultic mm-hmm. ambience to it of, of people that are using these really messed up like cultic practices that you don't really most people don't encounter day to day right, right. Yeah, <laughs> midsummer yeah. they're going on a trip to specifically visit this commune of of people in sweden who have these weird traditions and every 90 years they have this ritual and whatnot so we're not getting that it's sort of like it, it's absurdist but it feels it just feels like this is where we are as a as a world right now like mm-hmm. it, like it's extremely far reaching and wide branching but <laughs> Yeah. I'm I, again. Some. I'm. This is what I was afraid of when I try to like describe this film. <laughs> my my words will just start to fail. But uh, that's the uh, thing I, to say about like good creative art resists paraphrase, right? Yeah. So, right. That, yeah. That's, so maybe that's a good thing. I'm. Yeah. I'm trying to stick to some bit bullet points, so I'm. I don't seem too incoherent <laughs> here. But as far as comparing it to anything, I mean, I'd line it up somewhere between Charlie Kaufman, Alejandro uh, Jodorowsky, and the Coen Brothers. Hmm, yeah. um, I think you can specifically detect influence from the film Synecdoche, New York. I was and, exactly going to say that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Santa Sangre and A Serious Man. I think there's pieces mm, of, of all of that in there. And Astor clearly pulls from all these influences, but he has established his own style by now. And I think he's he's really trying to make a film that's definitely more personal, mm-hmm. uh, a feature that's more personal than what he's done so far, like for sure. Um, it's, it's definitely, I think, as we have alluded to so far, one of those types of films that will be alienating to many, Mm -hmm. but I think it really requires study. Like, like even if you dislike it and you think it's too broad and it's, it's perverse, it's disgusting, or it's just obnoxious or whatever negative feeling you may have towards it. I do believe it is one of those films that has a craft underneath it that can't be mm-hmm. ignored. Uh, I think <clears throat> one thing about Aster though, is like one of my complicated feelings about him. <laughs> it's, it's, it's maybe a sense of envy because I think he's roughly my age, maybe like mm-hmm. a year, maybe about a year older or something like that. But mm-hmm. I was like, he, it's, I don't consider myself that old, but you know, I'm now in my mid coming to mid late thirties. And now I'm like, Oh Mm. man, he feels like a prodigy to me. Like he's already Mm. made like these Kubrickian type masterpieces in a way. And what's, but Bo is afraid is, is like without a doubt, the most perplexing thing that he's touched yet um, Mm. on this scale. It's his, his least beautiful, but I think it's his most complex film. Uh, I, I lost count the moments in in the film where I wished I was watching it at home, actually, so I could pause mm. the frame and zoom in, you know, like Blade Runner style, like the, the <laughs> zoom in on blah, blah, yeah. blah. <laughs> so because I saw that there's whether it's headlines on the newspaper that's being read during the scene yeah. or the way uh, uh, what's going on in the background with the um when he's running out into the street and yeah, it's like just, all the gangs and whatever else. Yeah. Like. Just the insanity that's just going on. It almost feels like you're being thrown into like a video game where yeah. the, the, the entire world has been destroyed and now chaos <laughs> reigns in this, whatever, you know, and, and like, like just 
that level of absurd right yeah it also kind of weirdly feels like a musical because it feels choreographed but it's like the like the yeah. most upside down dark version of that and I, I did see something in an interview about i think it was like some of the extras in those scenes like he cared about each one of us and exactly where we were and what we were doing and like again mm -hmm. speaking to the, his meticulous uh, creativity with those kind of things but yeah, yeah that comes through and like those scenes are really striking because of that i think yeah. Um, as far as comparisons, I'm thinking about specifically that that section of the film. I thought about a Clockwork Orange a lot. It's like sort of a weird comedic take on that, which is like the outrageous graffiti all over his walls yeah. in his building, and um, and I think too, at least especially that section. It's and, and probably the whole film. It, it's like I don't know the question of like, do we take this literally, or is this like his experience of being this paranoid and this um insecure as a person and so i, I think uh we're kind of being put into his headspace so the question of whether it's literally happening probably isn't exactly the right question but right. it's just like the experience of this is supposed to be uh one man's one very very insecure man's experience of the world i think it's, it's an insecure or not insecure it's an anxiety fever dream like it, mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. uh, the first half of the film well, all i can think is is that it's as somebody who struggles with severe anxiety on occasion, mm. this, this, it does feel like it's disturbing and humorous at the same time yeah. because it's like nothing this bad could ever happen on this scale, but because mm. it's all thrown together all at once, it feels like that was my, it, it's sort of like laughter being a mechanism for healing through trauma it's like oh my like i've had that reaction in my life before sometimes when things get so when one bad thing happens after another i know some people don't react at all this way but if i literally have what seems like a terrible thing happen to me after another terrible thing just happened like i mm -hmm. sometimes will laugh yeah. because i'm mm -hmm. like there's no way like just are you serious like yeah come on, man. Like, <laughs> that's how I can. And so I, I think that me laughing at the absurdity of the extremes that, that happen, it, it's, it, it, I felt like this weird guilt about it, like, like mm. this guilt about laughing at how awful things. I know exactly what you're talking about. Go ahead and I'll, I'll tell you yeah. my little story. Um, so, but I, I have to say like, yeah, I, I want to uh, pick this apart just a little bit here. So as far as my gut reactions go, if I'm being honest, I, I kind of uh, mentioned this to you earlier. I'm going through a lot of personal and family trials right now, and it's it's a lot to deal it with all at once. And so one thing that's, that's continuous throughout his work is Ari Aster's always been honed in and can't seem to get away from premises driven by like really effed up families. Yeah. And so when I left the theater, I came away, like I almost felt, um, I came away in a bad mood. I like, I think watching this was stirring up some shit for me. Hmm. Uh, and, and it's funny because I, as I mentioned to you right now, like it's, it's interesting because I was laughing a decent amount throughout the film. Yeah. And it, it, that's why I, I think I use the Coen brothers comparison to something like a serious man where I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm laughing at the <laughs> so absurdity sad. of what's going yeah. on and how horrible things are for this mm -hmm. guy throughout the movie. And yet at the end, I'm like, man, that was bleak and rough. Yeah. I, like the moments I'm laughing at the moments, but I don't think back with like warm thoughts of, Oh, right. I will watch this movie 
to get into a funny laughy mood. Yeah, exactly. That's not yeah. that's not exactly what what where I'm going to be going with it. But I feel like the only way to in a in a sense the only way to make it bearable is to have that sort of absurdist mm-hmm. element that that lends to comedy throughout. Yeah. Um, so like as I said it was, you know, on the nightmare comedy front. Um, I'd say the first half or so of this film functions like it's just sort of a nonsensical nightmare for anybody who struggles with moderate to severe anxiety like I do. So, so um, but it also plays with that dream logic in a way that's pretty just damn funny sometimes. And I mm-hmm. think that that's where like some of the laughs that are a little lighter maybe throughout it. Um, although I, I, I can maybe count them on one hand. Like it's, it's mostly, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's just dark humor. It's just really mm-hmm. dark throughout. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I just I can't remember the time I the last time I watched a film where I laughed out loud in the theater repeatedly, and I had that sense of guilt and felt judged almost increasingly mm. every time I laughed because it's like it's so awful and so cruel and I'm like like I'm sitting next to my wife she's not laughing and I'm like oh no she's gonna <laughs> think I'm a psycho for laughing like <laughs> uh, but it sort sort of forces the idea of humor, like I said, being a, a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I mean, if it took itself seriously, I think that would be uh, like a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it would just be, it, it would be too much. I mean, yeah, you could make it work depending on who you are and, and whatever. But I, I just don't think that, I don't think it would resonate as deeply if it was played yeah. straight the whole time. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And to touch on kind of what you were saying earlier about the, just stirring shit up because it's the same thing for me. I literally driving home from this movie thought back. I wasn't going to share this. I just thought back to a really heavy night in my life when I got some very sad news and was dealing with some stuff. And for some reason I was just laughing because like it was just so like preposterous that this was happening. It didn't feel real. And I've always felt so weird and kind of guilty about that. And yeah, this movie kind of brought that up. And I think it's what you're saying. Like sometimes laughter is the only thing you can do when it's so outrageous um but yeah so it's very similar experience i think to you of of the way that that segment hit me but uh, but yeah i also laughed so much watching this like um even things and you know like there's a whole thing about like horror and comedy function the same way where you can kind of go to dark places and laugh and that like that's cathartic in a way Um, because it was exactly the same thing like some of the scariest moments or like darkest moments were some of the funniest for me i'm very scared of spiders (laughs) so as soon as that brown recluse popped up (laughs) i was like that's going to come back and it's going to be terrible but then that scene was so funny um, as as like kind of cringy and gross as it was i thought that was one of the funniest moments so i think it is going to those like maybe whatever is most uncomfortable for you you're going to connect with it in that way um so anyway yeah i i liked that aspect of it generally i like this film pretty well yeah. although i'm not anxious to you know watch it a ton of times in my life but i did enjoy it, it it's yeah. funny because like the brown recluse thing it's like the, the scene they they put the the sign on the door that says mm-hmm. warning there's a brown recluse in the building it, it's just <laughs> who would do it like that like i mean that's what it is it, it you would have to warn somebody but like having a 
a, a printed out JPEG on on there of a big round brown recluse. It's just like, what's the worst way we could make somebody anxious yeah. with this with this like little exactly. warning? It's it's just yeah. that detail of it's just amped up enough to seem absurd. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it doesn't. It, it's absurd, but it doesn't. It's not like slapstick comedy either. You know, it, it, it's yeah. it's just subtle enough to like be like, are you serious every, at every turn? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, so my yes, as far as um, um, and you, you know, I think you're maybe veering into this. A, a yeah. Little so bit. the next kind of question is like, what possible meanings or themes did you find here in this film? Um, anything? Well. So, I, as I said before, you know, I see see it as an anxiety fueled trip. But if we zoom out a bit, I think a lot of the melees in our modern lives is fueled by mm-hmm. things like economic uncertainty and mm-hmm. our disconnection with like the world around us that we inhabit. Whether it's us being stuck in a building in a room, being isolated, you know, whatever, or just not you know, encountering people that feel like a threat at every turn. Right. Mm -hmm. So the the film, what's interesting is, is the film starts out at a, at the beginning, Bo lives in this dilapidated apartment, the world and the world, like not just like some people, but it seems like literally the world is out to get him. Like Mm -hmm. he, he has, cannot trust anybody around. Everybody's like either on drugs or just extremely mentally ill or like whatever, whatever the situation is. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he can't even leave his building because just people are outside waiting to like break in, it seems. And and that's literally something that happens. Um, And it's not even (laughs) like some people, it's like everybody outside (laughs) just comes inside. Like not to spoil, but this is the first 20 minutes or so. So whatever. Like, it's just that, that anxiety, that suspicion you have, oh, we're going to confirm it. Yeah. Everybody's just literally going to go up into your apartment and just mm-hmm. destroy everything in your, in, that you possess in your life. <laughs> so that, that, I mean, again, that was that another moment of just hilarity for me. And then he like, just sits outside the window and watches it all happen. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hilarious. I mean, it's funny, but, but I mean, it's like every bit of it, it's, it's, it's almost real enough to where it is horrifying. Like, Mm -hmm. like I could, I could see myself in a dream. And I think that that's what, that what makes it kind of brilliant too, is it, is it has that uncanniness about it. That's that, that builds on that dream logic where it's just real enough to where you could sell it to yourself. If you're dreaming this, yeah, this is really Mm -hmm. happening. It's not like I'm talking to a blue elephant and accepting that as as reality. Like I'm accepting things that could technically happen in, in real life. Yeah could technically you know but but the chances of them unfolding in this way are are pretty unlikely so when when he's placed in a situation where he's nearly killed and some strangers take him in and generously help him out it's it's like oh that we're, we're getting this this sense of relief you know it's 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 beyond the laugh now and, and of course in our minds being smart movie watchers that we are, that we are, we're like, well, there's no way this is going to last and, and be, still be good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And of course, it's just a matter of when, right? When is this going to go bad now? Um, and it's it's just, but again, one of the funniest parts for me, one of the one of the best characters in the movie for me is, is the daughter yeah. of the people that take him in because she just like has this off the bat hate for him, just mm-hmm. that's so extreme. Because they, the parents insist that 
he stays in her room and he's like, no, I don't need to. I can sleep on the couch. And, and then she literally like gets in his face. You're going to sleep in my room. Like at one point. And, and she's mad that he does, but also he's, she's mad when he doesn't like, there's no yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and, and then there's this other guy that lives with them. This like veteran with seems like extreme PTSD. Yeah, PTSD. And this guy, he's just literally always staring at him. And this guy just has his targets on him. You can tell him like from, from the get go. I mean, this movie is the epitome of you can't catch a break. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, I can, in a personal sense, as I've said, it's like, it's pretty fucking prescient for me. I mean, Eunice and mm. I have been dealing with some just extreme landlord issues over the past few years. Um, it's, it seems like every time we hit some sort of like something good happens, it's like, all right, well, what's the horrible thing that we're going to have to deal with to counter the yen to this yang, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, can't we have a little more yen and just like, just have room to breathe and have life be, be better and stay better. Just, just, just cruise for a while. Like, can we have that a bit? And some people get that. That's awesome. And, you know, I had a pretty decent life for the first, however many years without extreme uh, complications. So, you know, sometimes I think about the idea of karma, though, though I don't believe in it. It's, it's, um, I think there's this thing that, um, there's like this joke I'm trying to remember that Peter Peter Rollins used to tell about. Um, I think this is actually uh, alluding to another uh, Jewish. I think this might have been a Jewish joke actually, which is relevant mm. to the film. Where um, there's this guy who's an atheist, and I'm probably butchering this, but the idea was that um, there's this uh, symbol like Star of David or something that you put over your door, and you put it there. And supposedly it's going to keep away evil spirits or whatever. And so then he, 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 he's like, all right, that's just mumbo jumbo. It's silly, whatever. But he, he buys one and he puts it above his door. And then somebody confronts him and says like, Hey, I thought you don't believe in that stuff. And he says, well, I don't, but I hear that, that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> so, you know, like there's this element in the film that, there's this just anxiety about life, right? That, that yeah. you're, you're being thrown into these absurd circumstances and at every corner, it, it almost seems like having these uh, suspicions, these paranoia, a lot of people live their lives like that, but it also doesn't mm-hmm. mean that, that, that having these suspicions and this paranoia, it doesn't mean it's unwarranted but it also doesn't mean that like it's, it's healthy to live your life that way. And I think this gets into the ending. We can talk about. um, Yeah. We'll do a little spoiler chat later. Yeah. 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 And we don't, we don't have to go too deep into that right now, but. um, But Yeah. I think it's interesting what you're bringing up, like, because I wouldn't say this film is like overtly religious, but I think, you know, if, if you've ever felt like, is there a God? Why is the world so absurd? Like this movie might speak to you on that level. And I think a serious man is a good counterpoint because it's, um, and that one is explicitly religious and it's like, it's like the story of Job from the Bible, right? Just like terrible things happening to this guy. Um, but but yeah, I did think about that. There is sort of a meta textual, maybe religious element to it. Um, yeah, I really liked the, I mean, obviously the maternal relationship is maybe the central thing here. Um, and that kind of manifests in a lot of different ways. Like, I think it's great how if we, in the first segment of the film, we realize how anxious he is in general. And then we have a sense that like, okay, his mother, his maternal relationship is really important just with the, those phone calls and stuff. But then I think it's great how 
he ends up in the in this this home of Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan, who they're casting. I think all the casting in this is great, but I really love yeah. Yeah. Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan. It's sort of they seem like this. They kind of exude this like prototypical perfect mom and dad kind of like oh is the the dad I wish I had you know he'll he's grilling he's a yeah. surgeon they're wealthy they have this beautiful home he yeah. wakes up after all this stress he wakes up in this like teenage bedroom he's like oh he feels safe for once in his life um, and then of course that all <laughs> goes to hell in the yeah. the wildest way and like they're so absurd too the way they're talking about their son who's died and uh, yeah and all the miscommunication about when we're going to go and when we're not going to go. Like it really leans into the comedy of that too. And I really like that about it. Yeah. Even the subtleties of the way that that it's written too, in in those characters with Nathan Lane, like when he keeps talking about, Oh, I need to, you need to go now. I need to go to to, to my mom, to Mm -hmm. my mom's funeral, et cetera, whatever. And then he, he gets up, he's in pain and, and he pulls it up and it's like, Oh yeah, he got stabbed earlier. And then, and then it's, it's like, uh, He's like, oh, you're not healed, my guy, or my dude, or whatever. Yeah. Like, the, just the yeah. way he says, it, like, like hey, you're sport. not healed, my yeah. dude. Like, yeah, yeah, again, it's just. I love that. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Nathan Lane, every time he was on screen, I was so happy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I guess it it gets into, like, the thing about, like, the theater section of the film is so bizarre. Probably the most, like, absurd. Yeah. Uh, but then it also gets that's where the, I think the Synecdoche New York stuff really comes into play because we have this like story within a story mm-hmm. and where like Synecdoche New York leans into the meta stuff way, even harder and it's like layers and mm-hmm. layers and but it's sort of like I think uh, the microcosm of of life in this piece of art and all of that uh, I liked all of that yeah even as that section is kind of jerking you around <laughs> like what is happening maybe the most in the film yeah um, that's, and that, that, so that's, what's funny is, um, th- that touches on something else I want to get to in a minute. I'm, I'm trying to, with my ADHD, I'm trying to stay on track with the, the points I'm, I'm laying out again. <laughs> sure, I sure. had to do that even more specifically with this film where I'm like, I could go any million directions with this conversation. It's almost like it's, a, it's this blessing and a curse. I think you and I talked about, uh, or you and I talked about before we started this, how, it's like, I don't know what to, I almost feel like I don't know what to say. Like there's as, mm-hmm. as crazy as this film was, it just, it's like, where do we start? Like, yeah. I took so, my notebook into this film and I took zero notes. There yeah. Like, yeah. I know because, be, yeah. because it's like, where can you start? Like what, where is the tether? And, and for mm-hmm. me, what it came down to was, I mean, it's all related and it's all relevant. Right. But I don't think there's that connective tissue that we're normally used to in films like mm. this. So I can see, I like guess, I don't know if Ari Aster is intentionally trying to make this alienating to like 90% of the audience, <laughs> but it, it's just going to be that way. And, but mm. I love that, that art like this can, can get out there yeah. and can be mm-hmm. relatively mainstream <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's just, an, it's encouraging. Um, after being used to seeing so many sanitized or, you know, regurgitated products mm-hmm. come out of Hollywood Absolutely. for so many years. Um, so as far as kind of leaning into um, some of the mixed feelings I have here. So there was an element. I, I talked about how, this film has an immediacy to it. It feels like it's absurdist, but it still feels very present. 
mm-hmm. to day-to-day life, I think, for a lot of people. And the immediacy, I think, in some ways hindered like the enjoyment that I may have expected typically mm-hmm. to, to get out of a movie like this, that maybe I would expect something more fantastical mm-hmm. in a traditional sense. And it, so a, a lot of films that I watch, like I, I watch a lot of like dark and crazy and disturbing films, but if there is a, if there's an excellent craft behind it, I still feel like all of that stuff, it's still, it, I still get a sense of awe mm-hmm. from the experience of, of being, I think actually Woody Allen years ago uh, said this about Bergman where it's like, even though the themes are really bleak, there is this just incredible feeling of being in the presence of great art, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you, that you sort of like feel like your soul is fat in a way, you know, yeah, from, yeah. from exploring and going into these dark places. But, but with Bo's of something like this film, Bo's afraid, I didn't get any of that. I didn't get any <laughs> awe at the, at the end. I, I, I felt a lot like I was Im- impressed. I was like my mind was titillated in all these different directions, but I didn't feel awe from it. And so it's, it's sort of like there's this massive mixture of like and dislike. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's hard because I loved it in a lot of ways. But I think that because and part of it could be just this personal thing that, that I'm like these these themes that it digs into are just so naked um, mm-hmm. in, in, in a literal and figurative sense. Um, <laughs> and they're so naked and, and so frank. And even even more so than somebody like, say, Lars von Trier, who makes extremely disturbing mm-hmm. films a lot of the time. But it, it, he still has like this gloss around the type of filmmaking he does in a lot of mm-hmm. ways that, that even if he explores some really messed up things, it feels like it has like this pretty bow around it. And it feels mm-hmm. for me, at least it feels like digestible, whereas Ari Aster's not concerned about any of that. Um, it, it, it's clearly like a work of art that is meant to challenge the, the audience. And yeah. And so I think that any of the dislike I have, I, I, I sort of keep it at bay because I, I do feel like this is a great piece of art and I, I do feel like it's saying and exploring a lot of important things. Yeah. Um, and it, it, so to kind of veer off a little bit in the themes direction, another, um, another theme that is definitely front and center uh, to the, you know, adjacent to the family dynamic, it has to do with, you know, we talked about his relationship with his mother and, and, you know, there's this Jewish trope of the guilt inducing overbearing mother. Mm-hmm. And I think that that film like plays with that to the extreme, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, that, that goes into sort of the tragic comedy. I mean, I think that that's more traditionally what this quote unquote genre is, is called the tragic comedy, right? Where it's, yeah. it's sort of structured. If you're, if you're going back to the mechanics of storytelling, it's structured like a tragedy, a tragedy. Mm-hmm. but it, but it unfolds with the absurdity of a comedy. So it, it, and I mean, there's this kind of Oedipal complex that's thrown into the mix, I think yeah. too, mm-hmm. that, that feels, you know, that peaks its head out a few times. And you mentioned the, the stage sequence in the middle of the film. And so that is what I found fascinating when the film started shifting into myth building. Mm-hmm. And 
then we learn about Bo's past, right? How his father and his grandfather both died upon conceiving their son during the act of orgasm, right? So as a former evangelical, both of us here, I guess, (laughs) this is ripe for discussion all day. Mm -hmm. So it's like sex is tied to not just guilt, but actual death. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, to avoid any spoiler spoilers, there is, I guess you could say this is maybe a, a light spoiler warning that here it is that it takes an, it takes an inversion in the final, final act. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, You know, what you, what you anticipate will happen. There's Mm -hmm. an inversion to that, that plays out in a way that's like, Jesus Christ. Um, (laughs) So yeah. um, The mother, the sort of mother monster character, it's, it's like this interesting counterbalance tying the themes together of, of the family and this other like internal, like struggle with one's mother and mm-hmm. also tying that to the, the bigger themes of, of connecting with human beings in the world. Um, I mean, economically, again, there's like, you could say that that is, and you could argue that the quote economic themes that are present in this film are more subtextual, but it's almost hard to ignore that when you get to the end, because I feel like it becomes clear at the, at the beginning, you know, like we said, Bo's in this dilapidated apartment, yeah. his mother that he's going to visit. I mean, we don't get any semblance at all of who she is or what she is until the latter part of the film. And then you show up there and she's, it's clear that she's extremely rich and successful and privileged. And so it's, there's a sense of her son is left behind. Right. Mm. Um, He doesn't only not measure up as a son. It's like, he's portrayed as a failure of a human being too, on on several levels. Um, Not, not morally or whatever, but like in every traditional, you know, say capitalistic economic sense or whatever, however you want to frame it. Um, so, yeah, I actually want to get some of your thoughts on that because I, I have some other directions I'd like to go with it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I thought definitely a lot about like the sexual repression stuff because again, not to spoil. I wonder if we should wait till we talk about that spoilers. Maybe we can jump into spoilers now. Sure. Do you think yeah. we're good for that? I don't have much else to say that's not spoilery. Okay, okay. So if you haven't watched Bo's Afraid, go watch it before you listen to the rest of this. We're going to talk about the ending and some of that stuff. Um, but yes, the sexual repression. So like we, we've heard this story about his grandfather and his father. And, you know, and that's what is in store for you too, Bo. And um, then, of course, the spoiler is that he doesn't die when he has an orgasm for the first time. And uh, so, so like, then we realize, oh, this really was like a controlling mechanism, much in the same way that maybe an evangelical child is controlled about, you know, what to, how to feel very negatively about sexuality. Um, and I think that a lot of those things come together in that attic sequence, which is bonkers but i think you know the the big monster we see in there is representing like this repressed sexuality that is just like god knows like that level of repression how monstrous that can become for you which is not like something that's overt throughout the film but it's there like that he's like sexually frustrated yeah um but then also the that whole sequence where he we see at the beginning like a memory of his mother there's some other child 
who you know doesn't behave well and gets locked away in the attic and then later in the film she's like don't you realize you idiot that's you that was you that happened to you and so then when he goes in the attic there's like another version of himself chained up in there um so i just yeah. read that as like yeah, the extreme neglect that um he as you're saying like was left behind was essentially you know locked in the attic in a sense yeah. um and yeah so i i I definitely like that. Like, I think the attic sequence is probably one that's one of the more WTF kind of moments in the film, but I think it's so key and and one of my favorite parts of the film, even though it's so, so weird. Yeah. Yeah. And and so there's this quote from Ari Aster um, about the film. And I'm curious about, I want to get sort of your take on it. Yeah. Where he says, I mean, he talked about how he's been, this project he's basically been working towards for the past 10 years. Um, and I mean, his description of it is just kind of about as, as silly as, as the movie itself is like, but in, in a, in a meta way where it's like, you're not really explaining anything about the movie by saying, yes, because yeah. <laughs> he says, if you pumped a 10 year old full of Zoloft and had him get your groceries, that's like this movie. I wanted to make a film where it feels like you've been through a, a life or even through a person, I feel a great responsibility to deliver something that's amazing. And the most like controversial piece of this or most evocative piece more, more or less is uh, it's like a Jewish Lord of the Rings, but he's just going to his mom's house. I want you to put you in a, in the experience of being a loser. So the thing about like Jewish Lord of the Rings, like, do you buy that? Or you think he's just kind of fucking with us? Like, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess you can see it as sort of an epic journey in a way. And I think when when he says that in the little video clip, we're seeing the animated portions. So, oh, it's going to be like this adventure thing. Um, but I mean, it as you're saying, like the, the the arc of a tragedy, it also follows like basically the story of the Odyssey in a way, like trying to get back home. Um, and then when you get home, everything's terrible. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think, yeah, it, it probably is fucking with us in a way with that lord of the rings quote but i do really like again it comes back to the cynic to new york that's like that sequence for me is when he's watching this elaborate play which is almost playing out this again like prototypical lovely little life in a in a village and then things go wrong which again is like the world is such a messed up place i I mean it feels like an atheist film (laughs) to me i think it's probably a way to put it um but yeah and then of course that then comes to a head and one of the more funny sequences for me too is when he's reunited with his sons which, yeah. and then he then he tells them i i can't have children yeah <laughs> what how did <laughs> that, you make this like <laughs> the absurdity of that <laughs> and like how well performed it is because it's the same thing as in new york where like that film is so absurd but then the performance is so good in a few moments that you like you feel actually emotional even though like this doesn't make any sense yeah. and like joaquin's performance in that when he's like reunited with my boys is like so tender and like amazing and then of course the context is so preposterous but um yeah i do like you know take you through a life because it really is like the the opening title we i think i can't remember exactly how it goes but it's like a birth sequence and then of course it ends with him dying um and that final scene is interesting as well the I saw some comparison to the Truman Show online, which is kind of a spoiler, yeah. so I didn't say that until we got here. Um, I don't think it's. 
I, I, I see that that comparison, but I, I don't think this is really trying to do the same thing. But just those meta touches where he sees himself on camera. I don't think it's supposed to be like he's, again, he's literally on a TV show or whatever. But right. I think it's just that level of neurosis and um, anxiety about it feels like his life is contrived to be this terrible, right? Um, yeah. Like, so like maybe it's an atheistic film or maybe it's a, a malevolent God film. Like someone is like, like the story of Job, someone is making this terrible for me. Um, but then that courtroom scene where it's, it's like that. I think it's so funny that the defense lawyer is like killed halfway through and you can barely hear him anyway. It's like the cards are stacked against him in such a rid- ridiculous way um, yeah. that yeah, I, I think it's a, a really funny ending, but again, so messed up. Uh, you know, just a funny little thing. So I we texted about this, but my son's name is Bo, spelled the same way and everything. Yep. And um, I think in the film, it's Bo Wasserman or something like that. Uh-huh. My son's middle name is Isaac. And towards the end of the film, they read his full name and the thing is Bo Isaac Wasserman. I was That's like, amazing. holy hell, what is happening? <laughs> really freaked me out. Um, but yeah, so that was weird. Just a funny little personal connection to this film. But um, yeah, what did you think about the final scene? So, yeah, so I, I was going to say my only real hesitation in seeing the praises of this film is that the final act dragged for me a bit. Hmm. Um, that being said, I didn't feel the length of the film at all until yeah, that mm-hmm. point. Uh, it was just in, in that little final stretch like the, the last parts with his mom and then the, the part where he's in that, what, you know, trial, in yeah. that, whatever that Coliseum place was. And ironically, this film being three hours, and I know, I, the, I believe the original cut was over five hours. There was this whole thing, you know, it was supposed to be like four, <laughs> four and a half hours long. Oh I know and, there's a midsummer extended cut out there. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I own cut it. Of this. Yeah, the, I haven't watched mid- it, but I have a copy as well. It's really good. Um, yeah. I really like the... Sorry to cut you off. Version. No, no, no problem. I was going to say, though, but what, what's funny is, despite feeling the length, I am actually more interested to see the longer version. Hmm. I, I know that that's counterintuitive for a lot of people, but sometimes, especially as a filmmaker and, and as an editor, I notice that like if you if you don't edit something a certain way, if you could make it shorter and it seems longer and vice versa, mm-hmm. you know? And depending on what elements were actually cut out of the film, it could actually, the the longer length of it could make mm-hmm. it a more the fulfilling experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's what I'm really curious about, though. I, I, I actually want to see what that longer, and I hope we do get the director's cut of this, because I'd be yeah. very fascinated to see where it goes. Um, seeing a four-plus-hour Ari Aster film, I'm, I'm more than down for it. I know a lot of people don't agree uh but you know that's that's i yeah. i do feel like I, it's not that i felt like th- there was pieces missing from this film mm-hmm. but i am i you know as an audience member i i do you know despite some things that made me personally cringe throughout the, the experience of sitting through this I'm like there. There's more to it. I know that I that I want to return to it. I want to dig more into it. And I feel like every Ari Aster film I've seen, it you know rewards repeat viewings. Yeah. So I I am yeah I'm hopeful that they actually do release the director's cut. Uh, yeah. And I mean maybe I'm just a masochist. I don't know. <laughs> no, but. I think I think that's a that's a way for me to 
want to watch it again because I, I mean, at this point, I'm like, I feel like I'm good at this point. But it, yeah, if there was some new version, I think that would be uh, under the right circumstances a good a good thing to do. And it wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't his choice either, I believe, because yeah, I I, I mm-hmm. do remember I'd have to look at the articles again, but I do believe it was like a studio like eighty twenty four thing, and that's yeah. also um, you know you referred to them taking down his short film bow. Um, I do believe that was also a studio thing where mm-hmm. they wanted to not have people refer to that in context yeah. of, of the film. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that, I mean, these are, I, I, I can't provide hard evidence for all of this at the moment, but yeah. you know, we can probably <laughs> Google it and find out. So um, now kind of in regards to like the filmmaking, I want to go. Yeah. I was going to ask that earlier. Yeah. Was there anything we kind of touched on a lot of things, but yeah, what yeah. do you think about it as far as how it's made? So as we kind of went into, like, the the attention to detail is very evident. And that's one thing I love about Esther kind of in general. Mm-hmm. He definitely embraces the subliminal and the uncanny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in, I mean, I, I can tell in some of his, his short films, like some of his early stuff. What's interesting, again, is his short films, I'd say almost all of them are comedy. Like mm-hmm. some level of comedy, whether it's dark comedy you know, uh, he did a couple early shorts that feel like college humor type stuff mm, that they're a little bit more just they're, they're absurd, but they're, you know, perhaps maybe like what you call low hanging fruit kind of mm. humor. <laughs> uh, but I mean, he, he's even in those little shorts, he's, he's still exploring some, some pretty interesting things. Mm. So in regards to the filmmaking he does here, though, the, any given street sequence where, I mean, they're in New York, right? Is that where they're supposed to be? I at think least? so, yeah. That, that, I don't know that if that it was explicitly sense. said. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it's just there's so much organized chaos happening in the background just at any given moment once you're, like, outside. I mean, it had to be a monumental task to direct all of those moving parts at once. And, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, they have assistant directors. They, uh, you know, I've been on enough film sets to know, like, they have ways to make it happen, but it's like every, I mean, I think uh, you kind of said this earlier about like, it seems like he does have that concern for all of his actors. Like every, mm-hmm. even the bit parts are important. The small pieces are important. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> performances, I mean, everybody's great. Walking Phoenix is incredible. And that's mm-hmm. no, su- no surprise. I mean, that's kind of his MO, but he's kind of, basically typecast now as the pathetic loser who's a victim of being misunderstood. And it's not necessarily what I call a revelatory performance. You know, he's excellent, but he's playing basically the type of character I'd expect him to play. Mm. (laughs) You know, he's not definitely not playing against type, so to speak. And I don't mean that as any kind of jab. It just means he was like properly cast for this. Yeah. I think it's a great casting too, because he, I mean, there's a way to like, play a loser but still try to make yourself look cool <laughs> he doesn't yeah. do that at all you know right. he, he just completely uh yeah really leans into I mean, like i think about some of the vocal performance like he's like mumbling almost or you can barely understand yeah it. there's, there's moments, some moments yes yeah. I, sorry i didn't mean to inter- interrupt no that, you're fine that you're prime prompting something that another film that this <laughs> reminded me of have you ever seen david cronenberg's spider I have not, no. So that is such a bizarre film. And like, it, it stars Ray Fiennes and he has, mm. he, he plays a, kind of a similar character as, as this. 
and the entire performance is mumbling. Like he never, mm-hmm. he never articulates a single actual word. I think the entire film, he's just like this weird guy who's like, who just mumbles his way through life. I, I don't remember the full context of the movie. It's, it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. That's but, interesting. But it, it's, yeah, that's a pretty crazy performance as well. And there were moments in there. I was like, what is he saying? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the rape find <laughs> yeah. spider guy. I had, I wish I was at home so I could turn on subtitles a couple of times, but it's yeah. also just like the commitment to like, right. <laughs> he's having such an unpleasant time and can barely even speak. I think it's one time cause he's got medical stuff going on, but then also maybe when he's really high, when the teenager yeah. makes him smoke, weed, he can yeah. barely understand. Him. Oh my God. That, that, you know, it would be a hilarious like joke on the, like a prank on the audience, even if Ari Aster could pull it off. I, I think it would be, now that we're talking about this, it'd be really, really funny if, if, once they come out and they do the captioning or the subtitles, like every single line that, that Joaquin Phoenix says, it just has that bracket that says indecipherable or whatever. <laughs> yeah, like I, that hilarious. would be just amazing. Cause I, I figure feel it like, out yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just, everybody else has their subtitles, but him just like mumbling or whatever. That'd be great. A great yeah. meta joke about yeah. this loser. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, like I said, I structurally, I don't know if I'm fold yet, sold yet on the final stretch, but I'm not discounting it either. I mean, there's still a lot going on there. Yeah. I do feel like it was just, it just got just to the point where it felt like it was maybe overstaying its welcome, welcome a little bit in some parts when his mom was monologuing yeah, all of the terrible things to him uh, about his life. Uh, but But all that withstanding, I mean... As far as Ari Aster's work goes, Bo is Afraid is definitely his boldest and his most unique work yet, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, yeah. And I, I was going to say, it's maybe not the best date movie, but what's funny <laughs> is I told my wife I was going to go see this. I, I, I was like, hey, I'm going to go see this crazy movie. movie. It's three hours long. I know you don't want to sit through that. So, you know, I'm just going to go home myself. And then she was like, ironically made her more intrigued and she was <laughs> in the past she's always said to me she's like i don't want to go see movies that are like three hours long because we were going to go see john wick four she's like what it's three hours i don't want to see that in the theaters <laughs> and then uh you know the day before she was like yeah i don't know like maybe i will go you know so i was like all right that kind of surprised me and she actually enjoyed it um but again i think that her main critique as we're talking about right now, she just felt like the ending just went on too long. It was just just too much at the end. Um, The biggest divergence between us is she has no interest in seeing it again. And I definitely (laughs) do. So (laughs) it's, that's kind of a, that's kind of where I landed on that. Yeah. What an experience. I think I didn't have much else to say. There's a couple of funny things I wanted to bring up um, and also sort of a connection to his other films. Uh, well, the, like, obviously, decapitation is a big thing in Hereditary, um, yeah. and like the decapitated corpse <laughs> that really made me laugh. Yeah, Just, like such a dark, dark joke. And, yeah. But then, you know, of course, that's like the cover story of how it's not really her. Um, yeah, I thought that was really funny. I mean, also like the scene where he's learning the news on the phone. <laughs> so dark and so yeah. hilarious i know um, yeah i was laughing at that and then too. it's bill Hader on the on the news later that was a really funny little moment um yeah and then yeah i, I really like that about it um one other thing about i was going to say about the ending i think i agree that the ending does drag a bit um the parker posey scene is 
she's so funny and so great in this too and what a bold weird scene for her to be in but i think she's great right um yeah yeah i think yeah. It, it was a movie that i i knew that i couldn't cast judgment immediately like i needed a few days but like ultimately i do really like this film um yeah. and i'm yeah. glad I, I think we were originally um weren't we original we were gonna, originally planning to record like the day after i was gonna see it mm-hmm. and, I, and but i i i had the impression i was like hey if we could if we possibly can i, I have a lot going on and i know it's been a struggle for us to even get this time carved mm-hmm. out but i was like if, if at all possible i would like a, a, a few days of a breather between yeah. recording and and viewing it i know that this movie will require processing <laughs> so yeah, absolutely true yeah so that's very much true um Side, uh, random side note, this was actually when Eunice and I went, this was our first time seeing a film at the Alamo Draft House. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Have you ever been there? I have uh, seen two or three things at a draft house just when I'm visiting Texas for whatever reason. Uh, nice. Great experience that I've had there generally. Yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, I, you know, we, since we came out here, we saw a couple other movies at um, another theater that's like literally across the road from us here. Um, that's a similar thing. Hmm. And I'd never been to Alamo Draft House. I'd never been to one of these like quote restaurant theater mm-hmm. things that they're doing now, which basically I think, I don't know if Alamo Draft House is the one that, that invented it, but. I don't know. I think they do it the best because there's one of those here too. Yes. And I have some quibbles with how they handle yes. all of that. I'm like, absolutely. Oh, that's better. the thing anyway. is it, this was our experience too. We went to, it's called Flick's Brew House. Hmm. The one that we went to that's near us. We went there a couple of times and, it was just like, oh my god! Like, the servers are are walking in front of us while it's going. Mm-hmm. They're talking, talking to people in front of us, yeah. like get, taking their uh-huh. orders in the middle of the movie. It's like, dude, are you serious? But I told Eunice that that I think was what prompted her to want to even go. Was I was like, look, I know we've had a couple shitty experiences at this other place, and I mean, it even feels like a, a like a ripoff of Flicks brew house, like yeah. Al- Alamo draft house. It has like this pristine, like, yeah. you know, uh, the way it, it, it trips off the tongue versus yeah. Flicks brew house. It's, you're clearly just like the, the wish.com version of there, the, yeah, the great Alamo. value brand. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, I mean, it's like, I'll go for maybe their $5 Wednesday to see a movie. I don't care about that mm-hmm. much, but yeah, this was like right. way way better and like even the previews it's like their personalized previews yeah it was really cool Mm -hmm. um yeah i think i saw the grand budapest hotel was my first one in a draft house and wonderful time with that and then i saw like 22 jump street i think which is a very different kind of movie but it was fun too and they had yeah they had fun stuff before it and yeah and yeah like the whole system of we're not going to talk to you right down your thing and we'll come grab it at your light. Like that works great. Same thing here. We have, it's called the movie tavern here in little rock, which actually is one of the better projections in, in town. So I, I still like going there. Uh-huh. Yeah. They'll just come talk to whoever in the middle of the movie. It's like, yeah. Should, should I go in the hallway right now? Like, why are you going to do this somewhere else? Yeah. But, yeah. And that, but that's what I noticed is even just like the way it's designed. I mean, the Alamo draft house mm-hmm. has like, the way the the seats, at least in the rows in the theater where we were in, it was like, okay, mm-hmm. cool. So the, the the row below us is low enough to where when the server walks by, they're not blocking the yeah. screen, you know? Absolutely, yeah. And so I think they, the way the plates are designed, it's like easier to eat in the dark without making a mess. Like right. they, they've really thought through all those details. So here we go. Yeah. We're not sponsored by the Alamo Draft House. We're not. Nope. This is just a fun <laughs> just little, hey, but Al- Alamo Draft House, if you're listening, 
Yeah. We're actually person. getting one in Fayetteville soon-ish. I think it's like- Yeah, I heard about that. Too, as soon so as I was cool. about to leave town, I, I, I saw- <laughs> Oh hey, Alamo Draft House is coming. It's like I've been wishing we went to Little Rock because one or actually one of our theaters just went out, and I'm like we could sell this to Draft House. It'd be really cool. But yeah. who knows? Um, yeah. Well, any any other last thoughts about Bo is afraid? Uh, now, just one final thing. I'd say, you know, I I kind of went over this, but to summarize, I mean, I think that this is Ari Aster's. Okay, in regards to his features, it's his least shocking, but his most disturbing of his three mm. features. Uh, I, I still think that the strange thing about the Johnsons, if you want to be like really disturbed, yeah, you know, <laughs> if you, if you want to test yourself, go that route. But so even though the, the horrors are more subtle uh, and, and more immediate, it's just, it's, it, it's not, yeah, it's not as extreme or like gory or whatever, but it's still it, the, the, when it comes to the themes and sort of the, the spirit of the movie, it's just, it, it's just, it's a lot harder to digest <laughs> than, than his previous two films, yeah. but that's also not a, not a bad thing. You know, like there's, there's just, there's a lot to process when it, when it comes down to it. And I think that he has a film that I think will stand the test of time and, and probably become a cult classic in some ways. Yeah. Uh, I, but overall, yeah, I think it solidifies him as one of the best young filmmakers working today. Um, and I know I'm not alone because Hey, Scorsese is apparently a huge think, fan. Yeah of uh of him too i was gonna say that too yeah and, and so he i know he wrote like an essay about midsummer and and loves that film and then was doing some screenings of this and yeah i mean the way scorsese throws around the word cinema like some things are some things aren't like mm-hmm. scorsese says this is cinema so you gotta pay attention yeah, yeah. um but yeah Gaddy says it's okay so <laughs> exactly. we'll follow his lead don't go to the marvel movies go to this that's what scorsese says uh well cool well thank you so much andrew for this discussion it's been great i think i mean it's just helped me process and like relive some of this film in a way that i feel like i understand it a bit more as well so hopefully it's helpful to listeners also and uh, always a pleasure having you on the show we'll have to have you back soon yeah it was fun thanks for having me Thanks again to Andrew for coming on the show and sharing his many wonderful thoughts on this very bizarre film. Stay tuned for next time. Michael Darty is back for part two of our Aronofsky series covering the films The Wrestler and The Whale. And with that, thank you so much for listening to Arthouse Garage. We have a few years worth of episodes now. You can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. Our theme music is by composer Paul Hunefeld. Learn more at appallingproductions.com. If you want to support Arthouse Garage, become a patron over at patreon.com slash arthousegarage or find a link in the show notes. You can also buy an Arthouse Garage t-shirt at arthousegarage.com slash shop. If you want to support us without spending any money, leave a rating or review in your podcast app, and that is hugely helpful. Stay in the loop about Arthouse Garage and the films we're covering by subscribing to our email newsletter. That's at arthousegarage.com slash subscribe, or you can email me directly, andrew at arthousegarage.com. And of course, follow on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Just search at Arthouse Garage in all those places or find links in the show notes. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.